Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly in this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And that's the purpose of this podcast, so that I dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, today is a weird episode for me because it will be the very first time I podcast with another human being in the room since possibly 2020. It's been years, and I guess it makes sense that if I'm going to have someone on the show, it will be the guy who I play games with regularly who lives not too far from me. One of the most analytical and yet funnest people I know to play games with, a man who never, ever lets you get away with any mistakes on the tabletop and is a joy to play, the man with a very attractive beard. Of course, I'm talking about Lee Avery. Welcome back to Cast Ties, brother. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be here, as always. I just got one question. Yes. If we've been in the gaming renaissance now for a while, <laughs> historically, what happened after the renaissance? I don't know. I forget. It's been too long since I took uh, art history. It's been a while. Right. I mean, we've been through the Age of Enlightenment, the Dark Ages. I guess we... Uh, industrialization? Is that our next step? Oh, God. I hope not. I, maybe the industrialization of 3D printing. Is that where we're going next? Mass-produced home Oof. hobby. Yeah. Well, I guess we're getting the tools with that, with uh, contrast and speed paints and with uh, better technology of paints and brushes and 3d printing and even when you buy models these days from companies the resin's sharper the details better yeah it, it is a pretty special time isn't it yeah i was just thinking of painting up some uh blood bowl miniatures at the moment for a comp in august mm -hmm. and i got some forge world models some of their new ones you can actually see that they've been 3D designed by computer. They've then 3D printed them in resin and used that to then make the master molds mm -hmm. because the actual model I was painting last night, on the very top of it, you can see that 3D print pattern in a very fine sense. Oh, get out. So, yeah, yeah I noticed that and I was like, ah, they've 3D printed the mold because they're clearly being mm -hmm. resin cast mold. Yeah. They're not 3D print versions. But then I've also got some 3D resin prints lately for um, various models. And the quality of them is just... And this is people printing at home with their own... Um, you know, they're not commercial level, industrial scale printers. These are your home-based printing setup you're chucking in your garage because mm -hmm. you don't want resin fumes in the house. No, you don't. Significant others will not be happy. Uh, so, you know, and the quality of those is, is quite high now. And a lot of it's now, I think, the detail factor and the problems with it is more to do with the sculpting design, not the actual technology of the manufacturing Exactly. side of things. I mean, there are tricks to getting the files to sit in a plate properly so that the details are, the printing details, as in the mistakes, are hidden. Um, there is an art to that, which is why when I find good commercial 3D printers, I tend to throw a lot of files of G.I. Joe vehicles at them and I end up with a lot. Yeah, and I think that's, again... But a good designer will preset a lot of those oh, things mm -hmm. so you can literally just plug it in and go. And I've noticed that on a few Kickstarters now. They're not just sending you a, an STL file with a character standing up. They're pre-sending mm -hmm. it with all the supports at the right angle to optimize. Right. So 
I think good designers are going to be quite successful mm-hmm. in whatever they choose to design when everyone's able to just have a either print themselves or you know a group of mates someone gets a printer and you you just share around what needs to be done or you find someone who's commercially printing which mm-hmm. you've done and I've done as well mm-hmm. uh, and that way you can can source those and I think you know we were chatting about this before is you know FDM you know, spool printing, is it actually going to be reasonable going forwards for hobby purposes? Maybe. Um, look, I just had some Marvel terrain, as in the X-Men Blackbird from the from the comics and the cartoon, uh, printed in MCP scale, um, and it is unbelievably big. And I had it resin printed, hollow resin print, but still resin printed. And uh, I won't lie, it was not cheap. But... The detail is outstanding, and I have had a few bits of terrain also printed using um, why am I uh, why am I blanking PLA PLA FDM. and I can't now I can't look at the PLA stuff. Yep, and I, it just can't go back. Yeah, I'm the same. I've got some terrain that's been uh, PLA printed, mm-hmm. and again, one of the pieces was I think poor artist design so when it came to printing it wasn't so much the printer but the way it was designed Mm -hmm. caused it to not print as well as it could have been Um, but I I personally now look at stuff and go I don't think I would print anything that wasn't resin even buildings if you can hollow them out or do them in sections I'd pay the premium and I think and that premium's narrowed exactly because a lot of the time you're paying for the printer time and the cost of the resin and the printer cost differences have dropped a lot as well. Mm-hmm. But Lee, we're not here talking about 3D printing today, are we? Well, we're just talking about gaming. No, exactly. Yeah, you brought up a renaissance, I'm just saying. But we're six minutes in, and I know that there are some people that are wanting to hear about our main topic today because this is one of the most requested episode topics I've had in a while, and that's saying something. Uh, it is people wanting us to talk about the event that we ran over Easter weekend at the Conquest Game Convention here in Melbourne, Easter Front. Now, last year, we ran a tank war event at Conquest. And was it was it also called Easter Front? It was, because we're very imaginative. Mm, yes. But it was um, it was much smaller. It was one day. And it was, a, it was just sort of a welcome back to bolt action after 2020's big lockdown, uh, saying, hey, lockdowns are over. Isn't it great? Let's get together and play some games. And then the bigger lockdown happened, and life felt bad. But now we're back, and uh, we had another welcome back to bolt action. And this time, well, rather than going with the tank war event, we went with a standard-sized uh, reinforced platoons. Um, 1,005 points. 1,005, just so people could eke out a little extra. Extra assault rifle in there. Extra assault rifle, turn that soft skin transport into an armored transport. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe you go from a medium to a heavy AT gun. Just just a little little extra. It's always fine when I'm making a list. There's always either I'm coming a couple of points under or I want to add something and it's just pushing me over. Yeah. So we thought let's just put that little extra in space. Yeah, give people a chance to mix it up a little bit. I mean, we have run other events previously at some pretty weird point levels. And um, when we run Bear later this year, again, there'll be a weird point level. And it will get strange, kids, because that's what we do. 
but yeah, it'll be fun. Sub a thousand points, I think, was the rough plan. Yeah, but still in the rough ballpark. Yeah, actually, I just came up with a great idea for the points level that's relevant to the event. Okay, we'll talk about it off stream. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And this is how we uh, this is how we to boys and girls. Uh, but no, it, significantly though, not only was it a big return to bolt action in Melbourne, and it was the first event that happened. Uh, oh, there was the Andrew Baxter event a couple weeks before that we've talked about on the show several times that you and I both played at, had a great time. Um, this was the first big major event in that it was two days. And there hadn't been a two-day event in Melbourne since the first Bolt Action event ever in Melbourne, uh, which was ironically a conquest, which was written, uh, the, the player pack for that was written by the original LRDG crew and was weirdly TO'd by me. Uh, so I guess I was back for a two-day event on Easter weekend at Conquest. It's the circle of life, Brad. It was very strange. But uh, yeah, what was it? Seven years on, uh, we had our second ever two-day event. And yeah, it was great. The first time it was a very, uh, how should I say, um, it was a very small event, but it was very. It was a lot of love in the room. We had Dano from the the old Bolt Action Radio podcast fly over from a, a part of the world that is not to be named. Uh, we had several people fly in from out of state, including Brian Cook, uh, and then we had uh, a couple folks from around the joint, uh, Mark Unsworth, uh, Anthony, and other friends uh, drive in to play as well. So though it was a small and I guess intimate affair. Uh, there was some really high-quality bolt action being played that weekend and just some great dudes. And the armies were really well-painted. And I was keen to repeat that this time around with Easter Front. And, I, man, I, I was really pleased with what we got. We had 18 players all up, uh, if you include the Gumby. And I'll explain why we're including the Gumby in a minute. But over two days, 18 players, especially on a holiday weekend when a lot of our normal players couldn't play in both days because family, right? I mean, Easter is a big thing down here. It's almost like the Thanksgiving of Australia for those of you in other countries. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty happy with that. Lee, how about you? Yeah, I mean, it's good to see people getting back in and playing. Uh, I think the... The numbers, the numbers were good given the weekend. I mean, at the end of the day, Easter Sunday here is a, a big, big day. A lot of family commitments, and certainly uh, my family in the past, my broader family in the past. You know, that was one of the things we get together for. Uh, these days, less so. Um, so yeah, yeah, I know I was quite happy to have eighteen people, and I mean, at the end of the day, as you said, had a, a couple of gumbies, um, and that was to allow us to functionally make sure that everybody had a game each round we don't mm -hmm. like to have buys if we Ooh. can avoid them and then secondly we had people that we knew were only going to be attending for one day mm -hmm. some were returning just for saturday some were just for sunday and then also accounting for potential dropouts late in the day as well um given the the circumstances of society at the moment um so yeah it was good and i think everyone had a good time um uh, didn't have any negative feedback from anybody so if they were unhappy they haven't told me about it <laughs> yeah in fact i've had uh, quite a lot of feedback of the opposite flavor a lot of people from the event have messaged to say boy that was great when's operation bear when are we going to play again 
Yeah. Uh, and that's coming in September, boys and girls. Um, we're still nailing down the venue. Yeah. I, venues have changed accessibility-wise in the last few years, yeah. obviously. Um, we've lost a few venues that we used to use. The the businesses that operated have, have gone, unfortunately. Um, we've also, a number of gaming clubs have also changed venues mm-hmm. um, that we have used in the past. Um, what we found also is the cost of running an event or hiring a venue mm-hmm. has also increased quite a bit. So where in the past we were able to charge, a, I suppose, a nominal fee for venue hire, mm-hmm. um, it's depending on where we go in the end, it's going to be a bit higher yeah. and that will potentially, you know, and that, that can affect people's um, attendance. You know, some yeah. people don't feel like, oh yeah, 20 bucks to play for a weekend. Yeah, that's fine. 50 bucks. Ooh, you're getting into 40 K costs now. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things where in the past, all of the thing, basically we were given lots of prizes from different sponsors to give out and you know the venue is kind of was usually pretty cheap and so the only thing you really had to pay for was kind of the venue and then trophies and now that has significantly shifted um a lot of businesses particularly smaller businesses uh i'm not necessarily comfortable going to regularly and saying hey um i know that you guys are you know, having logistics issues, getting things in, particularly to Australia, and then saying, yeah, hey, can I have some handouts, please? So uh, we tried to go to sponsors this year uh, for companies that we frequented ourselves, that we were big fans of, um, who got our regular business and continue to get our regular business. And so, but even then, moving forward, I'm concerned that I think that the halcyon days of getting drowned in prizes at events and them costing you walking out with more prizes worth of money than you paid to go play in the event. I'm sad to say, I think those days are gone. Uh, Lee, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, the structure of things has shifted to an extent and Mm -hmm. we just need to adjust. I think as sort of people that have organized a lot of events in the past and we plan to keep him organizing them and, and running them because we enjoy um, getting everyone together and having some games yeah. and you know play outside of that and sometimes in it um, I think it's probably just people's expectations I think will need to adjust and, and it's not just bolt action it's all events mm-hmm. it's it's everybody's facing the same problem exactly. um, you know I play a number of other games as do as does Brad and Who, me? Quite, quite, a, quite a few of the listeners I'm sure yeah um, and, and I think yeah you'll probably see that and I think it can also be very um, regional specific as well and I think Definitely. those in different countries will have different experiences and those um, I think even within Australia in different states also may have different experiences as well. Mm-hmm. If you, I know Sydney and New South Wales has a lot of established clubs. They have very good structures. For them, it's probably less of an impact. They've probably seen some venue costs increase, but as long-running clubs and community organisations, they've probably got a bit more mitigation. Mm-hmm. For us, being unaffiliated, uh, it sort of puts a bit of a spanner in the works. Yeah. But even some of the clubs that we do deal with and, and friends that are in them, and you know, I was a club member of my local club for 20 years before yeah. I moved, but um, you know, I know that costs for those venues have also gone up, so they're seeing an impact. But The Hampton Club, of which we used to run events at regularly, and when we were having Welcome Back to Bolt Action Days last year, uh, that club had been at the Hampton Community Centre 
forever. And I was a member of that club for over, what, 12 years? And I guess I technically still am. Uh, I just haven't been since they've reopened. And they've reopened in a new venue because everything shifted and the community center costs have just gone through the roof. And that's just the way it is now. Mm. But uh, I'm sure life will find a way, as they said in Jurassic Park. And we as gamers will find a way to make the games happen. But uh, speaking of the prizes of Easter Front, man, we were spoiled. Uh, we had elite miniatures here in Australia who are the local distributors for Empress Models. Uh, I have bought a ton of uh, Empress Vietnam range models from those guys. I was so impressed with them. And I just threw out a, hey, how you doing message. And they jumped on immediately and said yes. And they were way more generous with their prize support than even we, than I dreamed possible. So that was really great to hear that. Um, if you're in Australia and you like Empress, if yeah. Shipping times are a serious problem between uh, different parts of the world right now. To have a domestic distributor is phenomenal, and I love those guys. And their customer service is excellent. So big-time fan of them. Um, War and Peace Games, of course. We can't go past them. They are the largest distributor of – well, they are the distributor for Warlord in Australia and a number of other companies as well. Um, I buy tons of stuff from them um, recently – Entire tables worth of terrain for both Easter Front and Operation Bear um, because they sell the Gale Force 9 Battlefield in a box. And yeah, and so much good stuff comes through there. And they, of course, have always been longtime supporters of the bolt action scene down here. Cannot say enough good stuff about them. And they are integral going forward as part of the process of uh, Warlord sponsoring events here in Australia. So... Uh, they are the local voice of Warlord now, and that is really exciting uh, given that you know we are so far from the UK, and it really does um, strengthen the lines of communication, which is something we've wanted down here for a really long time. We also had Geek Villain, who if you looked at the pictures of the event and you looked at the tables, you would have seen almost every single one of our tables. And we had, what? To, uh, 10 or 11 tables set up on the day because we had a couple of spares running that we would cycle through. Almost all of the tables had Geek Villain mats. We are massive fans of those guys. And uh, to be able to have them support us as well was outstanding. And they donated an entire mat that we gave out as a lucky dip. It was just fantastic. Um, again, super generous because that's a very big prize. And, uh, you know, we also had any scale miniatures from the UK. Um, they gave us a, a code, a discount code for every player at the event. Love their stuff. I have tons of their vehicles and uh, terrain pieces. And, yeah, we can, of course, go pack Knights of Dice. Uh, Viv said he was going to give us a, a couple of bits and pieces. And then I drove out to the warehouse and showed up and, like Christmas, he said, yeah, I just opened up the trunk and just threw things at me. It was outrageous. The man's a legend. Um, and God, I have so much Knights of Dice terrain that I have to now build because I, I felt bad and wanted to buy a bunch of stuff. And I already had a bunch of stuff. So now, um, before Operation Bear, there will be a lot of MDF assembly. And I guess the last sponsor is a weird one because it's me. That's strange. Um, because I am the host of the official Warlord Games podcast, 
Uh, I used my comp for the last year um, to collect prizes that we used at the event. And I'm looking forward to hosting quite a few more episodes of the Warlord cast between now and Operation Bear. And I'm hoping that that uh, plumps out to the prize pool um, because, yeah, that would be great. You just got to keep working, Brad, to support the tournament scene here in Melbourne. That's right. That's right. Well, the good news is there is at least one more episode of the Warlord cast currently recorded about to uh, be edited down. I just mixed it the other night and now I'll just have to edit it, put it in the can and send it off to be approved and then it'll go out and I'm about to record another one. So there's plenty of uh, Warlord Games podcast content coming uh, and it's to benefit the local players. Yeah, which is really great. It's good that you chip stuff in. I do appreciate it. That's a lot of fun, man. It keeps me off the streets. Keeps me busy. But anyway, let's talk about the event. Now, Lee, maybe you can talk about the players and the lists because you were the list checker this year. Obviously, if you had concerns or you wanted to talk about something, you would send it to me and we would have a, a chat about it. We, we talked through quite a few lists. But uh, there were some lists I just hadn't seen walking in because we delegated the jobs between us. But there was a really nice variety of nations and army types on the tabletops of this event. We had, of course, the big ones. We had all the majors, uh, the Japanese, the Americans, the Soviets, the British, and... Um, the Germans. The Germans, obviously. But then we had Australians. Uh, we had a Chinese player, me. Uh, but we also had... Oh, why am Partisans? I yeah, we had a partisan player. And, but looking around at the tabletops, it was just really nice to see such a, you know, a spread of army types. We had all mechanized lists. We had almost all infantry lists. Um, there were jungle forces. There were winter forces. There were desert forces. It just felt good to see such a, a nice spread of the bolt action listing possibility on the tabletops. It was great, right? It's almost like it's a historical game based on a worldwide conflict and that there's not an infinite amount, but a very broad amount of potential options. And I think that's, in my mind, the the attraction of it is that people can create specific forces for specific theatres that they have an interest in. And that then allows them to, you know, do some modelling, do some painting or, you know, write a specific list that they find interesting to play and hopefully their opponents do. And I think, as you said, you know, we had most of the um, different forces that you'd expect were there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's multiples of um, some of those. I know there was at least two Japanese. Mm -hmm. um, but we start talking about specific lists. I mean, from a, we try to ensure we've got a reasonable balance and nobody's um, tilting a list a particular way or mm -hmm. too hard. So we don't allow, as a general rule, uh, tank wars lists or armored, nope. armored platoons, if you will. Uh, for most of our events, if we do run events for armored platoons, we'll run them purely as armored platoon events. Right. We don't mix. Uh, it just creates a bit too much mayhem, particularly in smaller pools of players. Uh, an armored platoon can be quite dominating. Uh, so as far as lists go, I only had one that I outright rejected and said, go back to the drawing board uh, with some pointers. There was a couple others we just sort of said, hey, can you tweak this? Yeah. a little bit. Um, we did have a dis couple of discussions around a few. One in particular had uh, two flamethrowers 
mm-hmm. um, which we the player pack didn't say. You, usually, we run single flamethrower only in a mm-hmm. list rules. And then, unlike previously, I know for a long time in Australia, vehicle flamethrowers were just outright not allowed. But that hasn't been the case in second edition for quite a while. So, for those wondering, when we say a single flamethrower, it's either a vehicle mount or an infantry mount. You get to choose. But for this event, we had someone take two. In fact, didn't we have two people take two? No, we only had one that took two. We had a couple of people that took singles. But mm-hmm. we hadn't specifically said in the player pack, single flamethrowers only. Mm-hmm. But what we did is we looked at those lists right. um, as they were um, and what else was in those lists. Mm-hmm. So um, the two flamethrowers was fine in comparison to the rest of the list. That's right. Uh, it was a Japanese list. Um, I was happy with everything else that was in there as being reasonably balanced. Uh, and then the single flamethrower ones were your usual suspects. So It was, was cool to see a Matilda frog on the table. Pedro took one. It yeah. was uh, Australians, which was fantastic. Those Australians, he actually won as a prize in a previous event. And the fact that he painted them up, mm. put them on the table, and then he brought a tank I'd never seen on the tabletop. It was just really cool to see. Yeah, it's always good. I've done the same you know taken prizes and, mm-hmm. and use them to build armies um you know it's a good way to do it right you try something new different modeling different colors mm-hmm. i mean it's world war ii it's 50 shades of green and brown but right. you know sometimes a little bit of khaki uh so you sort of mix stuff up a little bit but you get um people you know it prompts people to try different things yeah and i mean mike consto had the same thing as well Mm. Uh, he's an old friend of ours from wargaming from way back when and he played in a couple events prior to all the big lockdowns uh and he got you know a bunch of prizes because everyone gets a prize where we try to uh and he painted those up and he brought them as his new u.s army to this event uh and it looked so good that even warlord is now going to feature it on their website i mean Mm. So good. And again, that was just prizes from local events. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's wonderful to see the community sort of coming together like that. And it's the cycle of life, I believe, is what you just said. It was great. The circle of life. Circle. Sorry. Yeah. Got to get your Lion King references. <laughs> <laughs> I just flicking back as well. Table-wise, we had 11 tables of terrain set up yep. to give us variety. Uh, and then we had a TO table and we had an empty table that was basically used as a various bag dumping ground and mm-hmm. for me to do some hobby when I wasn't <laughs> wasn't required because I was furiously building a um, bunch of vehicles that weekend. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit about the variety of terrain because I was listening to uh, another podcast, The Bacon Burgers, and they were talking, they t- spoke briefly about their experiences at Easter Front. But... Um, we really went out of our way for this event to have a variety of table types. We had uh, one table that was a wrecked city. It had really high terrain density, um, but we left some clear uh, lanes of fire between the buildings. Um, so it wasn't like you were, you could advance through things quickly if you had to, uh, depending on the mission. And the feedback for that table was um, <laughs> people weren't necessarily ready for it, but a couple of people absolutely loved it, and they loved that that was there. I think it also forced people out of their standard play types. On the other side, we had a couple of desert tables that were intentionally rolling hills with some buildings, but there was a lot of wide open space on there. Rolling hills? Yes, because you made me get rid of the big tall hills. And I put a couple of the big tall hills. But for everyone who complains about my Mount Morin, which is this 
giant. Uh, they are the dunes of the Sahara. Yeah, it's massive, but not I, scaled for BA. I left uh, of the five sections of that giant terrain piece. I left three at home. It was two of the five pieces. It was fine. And I put much lower hills. I spent a lot of money, Lee, buying yeah. those after our last episode. And you told me to get lower hills. And so I did. I'm just going to get a foam cutter. <sighs> take it to Mount Morin. Don't do it, man. But no, I, but then we had everything in between. We had um, we had some Eastern Front. We had uh, Ben Llewellyn brought a couple of brilliant tables as well. It wasn't just my stuff. And the tables just look fantastic. Jungle tables. We had a couple of those. Yeah. We had a new jungle table. I, I built one of the big jungle tables over Christmas this last year. Had a winter table. I, yeah. Had several winter tables. Had a village table. Had a generic winter with a couple of huts. And uh, yeah, it was great. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, a good variety. And I think particularly because we were playing six games... That meant everybody got to play basically across over half the tables. Exactly. And we did our best. Well, certainly for the first round, we matched up forces as best we could for historical matchup mm-hmm. and for table. So, you know, it was Australian jungle fighters versus Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we put some Soviets on the wrecked city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we tried to match those up for the first round and then subsequent rounds as well when doing table draws sort of had a look. Um, obviously, make sure people weren't paying, playing on the same tables again. Yeah. Um, and then just try and get a good mix. Yeah. I think having a few spare tables was also advantageous as well. Because it meant yeah. we could spread it out. And certainly packing up on the Sunday night. Really helped. Having a couple of tables where people weren't playing and being able to pack them up in the last round. Sped up the final. Especially the tables with all the pieces, like that wrecked city that takes forever to pack up. That yeah. was lovely to have that, to have an hour to pack that up and not have to worry about that as part of a general pack up. So, yeah. but for those of you running events, it doesn't, if you can fit it, I know that oftentimes people think, yeah, I'm just going to have as many tables as I have players. And look, sometimes terrain density means you have to do that, you just don't have enough terrain. But if you have people offering to, to bring extra terrain, you think, nah, I don't need it. It doesn't hurt to have an extra one. The Marvel event I went to recently had a spare table of terrain for the very same reason. It allowed you to, particularly when we were doing the rounds, uh, to be able to say, ooh, ooh, no, now it's getting interesting, particularly for game six. How do I ensure that people aren't playing on the same table to then have a little wiggle room to shift and say, oh, cool, I can have... These people who've never played on a table they've never played on because I have more tables. It was really handy. If you have the space and you have the terrain, it's a really good idea to do that. Yeah. I mean, we were in a very large venue as part of a oh, exactly. bigger convention. Um, so we weren't space restricted. We could have, oh, look, we probably could have had another 20 tables if we really wanted to space Easy. wise. There was certainly the the floor space for it. Next year. Well, yeah, we'll see how many people <laughs> want to play over a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, the terrain, if you've got it, it, it's worth it. Once you start pushing around that 20 people mark, you want to be able to have flexibility for tables in later rounds because you can have two players in round six that have both played on five different tables each. That's 10 tables. Mm-hmm. You can get yourself squeezy. And it, look, it's a preference thing. It's not required. Mm-hmm. I... Um, yeah, I played at events where I played on the same table more than once. Yeah. And that's just 
I mean, it, it is the nature of the beast. It happens. But if you can help it, I'd, I'd prefer not to have that happen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But I think the other thing that's worth talking about is just the way that people came to the event. It was, we saw it in a lot of the lists. People generally brought reasonable lists that were vaguely historically themed for the most part. I know a couple of people yeah. brought some general, some people got specifically down to a unit on a date in a conflict. Michael Kaler, I'm looking at you. Yep. Uh, other people went general, this particular army in this particular battle idea, and then it went out to Americans in Europe and that kind of thing. And that's fine, too. What are you it, saying about my list, Brad? Hey, I'm just saying. But no, it's it's what I'm saying is no matter how you come at it, it's what, whatever brings you joy. I know that sometimes when you know people are talking about, oh, it's competitive versus historical – it isn't because there's a million shades of how you want to theme your army and what gets you excited as a player. Um, I know that some people are just really excited about painting particular models and to be able to have those and then put them down, even if it doesn't match a particular time and date, that's fine. It's cool. As long as people are having fun and no one's going to be hurting anyone else's feelings, it's, it's totally fine. Yeah. And look, at a thousand points, by the time you take your compulsory mm-hmm. HQ and two units, there goes... You know, probably close to 300 points straight up. Mm-hmm. You know, your choice is most generic. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Mine are usually 450. Yeah, but you take yeah. your first couple of units and a HQ, you pretty much auto take a mortar or a sniper. You know, you can you pretty quickly clear up half your points. Easy. Throw in a tank, there goes another couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. A lot of lists look generic in that sense because of right. what the list construction and what your options are. You'll see varieties in the types of tanks people take or the types, whether they take transports or not for their troops. Do people take tows or not? You know, little things like that is where we get variation. But I think theatre lists are an interesting point because you generally give up a choice in what you can take Mm -hmm. and your bonus is either some sort of rule bonus or you can get duplicates of particular vehicles or units or something like that so my americans for example i've built them based on the um, rotanzio italy list mm-hmm. i can take two bazookas mm-hmm. but i'm restricted in what i can take for the rest of the army so exactly. but you could easily build the same army in a generic us platoon mm-hmm. but you don't get a single bazooka unless you took a dual platoon to get a second bazooka yeah but which... then you're paying lt tax exactly. and at a thousand points it's not worth it um so I think it's you do end up with similarities in lists in a way, unless you go the theatre list path. But even then, a lot of them can be duplicated as regular platoons generally anyway. So a lot of it's just around you self-restricting because you want to do a particular type. Yeah. But it was also... I mean, it was nice to see that everyone sort of thought about their list... I would say the the quality of the lists were were good. People had put a lot of thought into what they were bringing, mm. and they were yep. comfortable with them. And I'm pretty happy with the level of bolt action that was being played on the day. We had a couple new players, mm-hmm. uh, and yep. folks were helping them through their games, and they did pretty well in and of themselves. And then we had some players that absolutely were looking for that challenging, very tactical game that you need some experience to bring to the tabletop, and I think they got that as well. I was just, I was pleased with, um, I think bolt action happened in in a really pleasant and happy way. Yeah, that was a good day. 
Yeah, sweet. Well, I do know that a couple of people have asked. Uh, we do have a podium. Um, on the day we gave awards for best theme, which went to Michael Kaler for his beautiful Germans, all mechanized, all zipped up uh, in the SDKFZ 250s. Recon platoon. Yep. yep. Uh, using the recon platoon rules from the Budapest book. Uh, we had uh, best sports. Of course, it was our buddy Jack. Um, who normally plays a lot of Ninth Age and slash yep. of other things. And man, that was that well-deserving. What a good dude, right? Yeah. He actually uh, was running a Ninth Age event the other week. Yeah. I wasn't there to play the event. I was there to play something else, but he was running an event. Mm-hmm. So he's he's also an event organizer. So I think it's good to see him get good best sports for that. Yeah, absolutely. He knows, he knows the ways. Oh, he does, man. He does. Had to shake hands and smile. But no, I mean... He's legit a nice guy. He was helping mm. us pack up terrain well past everyone else's time. And like he really went out of his way to make sure that we had a good time as the TOs as well. Checking in with us, seeing how we were going. What a nice guy. Like Seriously, he can come back anytime. Yeah. I actually, I picked up some Warhammer, old classic Warhammer parts mm-hmm. off him a couple of months oh, ago. Nice. In between lockdowns to work on one of my armies. I've mm-hmm. been trying to restore. Uh, yeah. Good the- bloke, Jack. Yeah, dude. Jack, if you're listening, come back soon. We love you. We also had uh, one of the most highly contested trophies for anything in Melbourne, particularly in the bolt action scene, is best painted. We, we like to think that we have some good hobby here and we have some phenomenal painters. And the painting race was pretty tight for this event. Uh, but there was one army that clearly won on the day. And it was so well-deserved. Our buddy Ben Llewellyn, um, we've talked about him coming to events in the past. I believe it was the last time Operation Bear ran, which was 2019. Um, He came very close to winning Best Painted, but his Germans were so well-painted in camouflage, they blended into the table, and I don't think people actually saw them. So for this event, he actually showed up with uh, Soviets, and my God, they were top top tier and i ended up playing him in the second day and wow it his stuff is outstanding and i was so happy that that one uh, just got all the votes it was so good did he bring a display board for that this time yes it was a small display board it mm. wasn't the epic multi-level uh display board that several players took but it was uh, it was yeah it was like a little rolling hill it was good yeah, I was just thinking because his last army got absorbed into the general no, table. Yeah. So he definitely had something least, to put it on. At least it was framed and you could see exactly. which models were relevant. Yeah. Well, then we also had three trophies for best ally general, best axis general, and best minor power general. Uh, going to the best allied player, it was Albert. Um, he's been playing in the Melbourne scene for a couple of years now. I actually played in a Marvel Crisis Protocol event with him the other day. That dude knows how to push war dollies around, and um, he's really good, and he knows his rules. And watching him play was a pleasure. And yeah, he won. Uh, he won best allied, which was very tightly contested. Uh, the next player for that one was one point away. Uh, so yeah, I think it's interesting that overall the top three were all allied players. Yeah. Well, I was going to get to that so in a second. Yeah. But if we look at the overall podium, if you look at it as a traditional podium, Albert came in first place with 96 battle points over the course of the weekend. And Tristan from the Bacon Burgers came second 
also an allied player. So he missed out on the best allied trophy by one point and second place overall by one point. Uh, third place was JL from the Bacon Burgers. He was a little bit behind those two. Um, he was, of course, also an allied player. But Albert and Tristan were both playing uh, British, and JL was playing Americans. So uh, Albert was playing Canadians, to be specific, but it was using, I believe, the standard British rules. I think he was using one of the D-Day selectors, actually. Oh, brilliant. Now that I think about it, because... There was, yeah, it was one of the D-Day selectors. So he was running I, I Canadian to, Canadians. Yeah, because oh, I had cool. to go look up the, the rules oh. on them. I, I remember yeah. now having to shuffle through the books, find, mm-hmm. find uh, to make sure there wasn't any hidden sneaky cheese, mm-hmm. which is what we expect from the bacon burgers. Yes, but not Albert, because he was running the, the old Canadians, which was good. So yeah, I guess a, um, a, le- a lesser seen army won this event, which is fantastic to see. Yeah, we've had some Canadians before. Byron's run. Byron, Canadian. that was it. Yeah. Yep. He ran his Canadians as a uh, brigade. Yeah, it's awesome. carrier group. Yeah, super good. And then in fourth place, we had our buddy Pedro, who was running uh, the Australians that we talked about a little while ago, and he took out the best minor power trophy. Um, then we had Michael Kaler, who was, uh, what, fifth place? And, of course, we're talking about his mechanized Germans. Uh, and then below that by just a couple, actually tied with that, is uh, Mark Patchy, um, who was running the Japanese, and he won Best Axis. So, yeah. Yeah, it was tightly contested at the top. And I think that's the thing when we've really only got sort of Best Allies, Axis, and Minor. Mm-hmm. You can get... Uh, you, you can get the the situation where somebody could come 12th and get best power of mm-hmm. some description, depending on how everyone else has gone. So it can really be a bit mixed at the end. I know Mark was quite shocked to get best access, given pretty, how his games have gone overall. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, the... Uh, the um, Oh, we did cascade it down, though, because Michael was playing Best Axis. He was. But he got Best Theme, so we cascaded the Best Axis down to Mark. That's right. Well, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they were on the same points. They are on the so same points. Split. And it was, Michael had a slightly higher strength of schedule. Yeah. So, yeah we exactly. shared the love. That's right. Um, and we did have one Axis player who was on fire, though. And it should be mentioned that our good buddy, Lucky from the Dwellers Below podcast, occasionally from the Bacon Burgers and from other places. Uh, he came in swinging and he took down Tristan epically in the first day, um, which robbed Tristan of uh, his, his, uh, his first place prize, I heard him say on his podcast. But uh, Lockie had three big wins the first day with his Vichy French. And wow, yeah, he was on fire. It's a shame he couldn't come back for Easter Sunday. Because I would have loved to see what he did with that list. Because what a list, and he he knows how to run it, and he was he was on fire. Yeah, he did quite well. I think it was, uh, was it ben, uh, ben or Consto. No, Ben could only play one day as mm-hmm. well, so he only played on the Sunday, and he actually came in and um, dominated as dominated well. Dominated as well, which was quite interesting. So it, I think the trick is yeah. there: play one day, do well. And just leave on your leave on a high. Exactly. But if if you had combined Lockie and Ben, they would have won the event hands down yeah, by a country quite mile. Easily. Yeah, we did uh, points wise. We 
we allocated them um, just from a, a uh, what do you call it, from a distribution mm-hmm. of, um, we Results gave them losses wise. throughout just so it wasn't super disadvantaged. Same with anyone else who had to drop. That's right. And yeah. just like what has been done in a lot of other events, we had... Um, we gave, if a person won, they got a certain number of win points, then there was a certain number of draw points and a certain number of loss points. Mm. Um, but then we also had additional points that people could achieve. We did. And now I'm having to search my memory. I think we had HQ destruction being in the deployment zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, most units in the center. Do we have some Something center We grab? talked about that. I don't think we actually did. Yeah. That. It's been a little while, guys. I'm sorry. It's, yeah. um, it's term... Two and it's report writing season, and Lee went on vacation, and I've been busy with report writing. So um, it's been a little while since Easter Front, but I, again, we're really happy with how it went. Um, I got to play three games, Lee got to play two games, and um, I've talked about my games several times on other episodes, so I won't go into detail. But I have to say, in day two, taking a Sturm Tiger is exactly what you should do if you don't want to win a game, which was what I was hoping the Gumby would achieve, and it was great. It was so much fun to watch a T-34 just disintegrate into tiny, tiny, tiny little bits of metal when the Uber howitzer knocked it into next week. It was glorious. It was. I won the game morally for doing that, even though I lost my pants in every other die roll in that game, but it was great. Yeah, I think that just shows the the risk of single shot expensive vehicles where you get one shot a turn. If it hits, it pays off big time. Yeah, but you're going to miss a lot of the time anyway. So, and, and I've found that with vehicles in general, which is yeah. why you want to festoon them with MMGs. I am a little tempted after running the Sturm Tiger to run something even more point inefficient uh, because the Sturm Tiger I think is what 480, and now I'm thinking, God, I have the IS three. Why wouldn't you run a 600-point regular tank that has one big gun, well, uh, what, one heavy AT gun, one coax MMG, and one whole MMG, and that's it. And just YOLO around the place saying, you can't kill me. I can give you many reasons, but if it's what you want to do, go for it. I, I would suggest stuff like that is probably better for a armored platoon event or some sort of um, themed big battle day. Yeah, yeah it's, just, so, it's, it's fun. I don't care. It's, it's one out away from disappointment. Oh, man, with an armor of what? 13? 12? 12. It's one more than a super heavy on the front. You just say, hit me. Hit me in the chin. Come on. Anyway, anyway. Lee, you did not have the best luck playing as the Gumby in your games, no? Yeah, I, I have to say my... BA performance in the last few months has been pretty bad. I'm going to put it squarely on my dice rolling below <laughs> average. Um, I mean, you know, you're rolling prep bombardment. I rolled ones twice that weekend, mm-hmm. you know, so my opponent doesn't get prep bombarded. Um, you know, and that's that's a game mechanic for those missions that's relevant. Um, and just, you know, Sherman that just couldn't hit anything. Um, yeah. Just <laughs> poor dice. I'm going to just say that. But, I mean, we intentionally chose the missions. We played six missions, obviously. Yep. Uh, two were kill point missions where you're trying to kill more of your opponent's dice than they kill of yours. We played um, 
not meeting engagement, the other one from the rule Development? Book. No, uh, No Man's Land, I think is. Um, and then there was Punch Through from the um, Bolt Action Alliance mission pack. So yep. one had preliminary bombardment, and then we chose another mission intentionally uh, from the base rule book that had preliminary bombardment because we are aware there are certain nations that have that built into their national rules and you don't want people to not be able to take the the spinning parts on their particular toy and that's cool but i have not enjoyed playing against or playing with preliminary bombardment and i haven't been particularly unlucky with it recently but i i, I the more we run with it the less i want to do it i think it, it's You've got to look at it in context of the mission in that you have the option to put stuff in reserves generally. And so it's a tactical decision as to whether to put stuff in reserve and risk is it going to turn up later mm-hmm. versus starting it on the board and potentially spending your first turn just rallying. Yeah, And and the worst outcome from a prep bombardment is you take some hits, right? Mm-hmm. And unless you're a small team, if you're just a regular unit, it's just it's not going to really affect you. Death-wise, it's not like being hit by an artillery strike. It's just mostly pins and then you lose a guy or two. There were a couple players at our event who rolled high on pins. And so they had been pinned fairly heavily. And then Mm. a bunch of them failed a couple of their rally orders. And that really disadvantaged them going into turn two. Yeah. And that feels bad. And I don't like feeling bad. Failing... uh... As somebody who does fail rally checks as well, mm-hmm. I mean, it's your your numbers wise, you should be passing them, right? right. The, the the two factors there are you they're rolling really high, so therefore you're failing, and you just go down, so you're not likely to take more pins anyway, but you lose a turn. The second factor is that you um, you pass your check, mm-hmm. and you've got multiple pins, and you roll poorly on how many pins to remove. Oh, of course, there's that too, isn't there? And having rolled one several times <laughs> in a recent event to remove pins when you've got five and you only drop two. But you drop two that way. But you're still sitting on three. Yeah, no, so know. it's like, well, I've got to rally again, and I'm still standing here, and I'm not down. So I sometimes, depending on the circumstance and what I need to have happen, don't necessarily rally with three pins. That's sort of, I know that's my little cusp of, I should probably rally. It's three pins. I get it. In my head, I actually see your face, Lee, saying, it's three pins. You should rally. Correct. But sometimes if it's, if I need that assault or I need something to happen, I'll just, I'll, I'll risk it. And I know that that isn't. I, I know you as a numbers guy. I can see your uncomfortability with what I'm saying here. I need but, to leave the room. I'm uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if it, I'm not going to stand next to someone and shoot them because the minus two to hit is significant. Yeah. But if it's an assault where pins don't yeah. quote unquote matter, look, I'll, I'll make that, I'll, I'll, I'll make that chance. I'll take that chance sometimes. Yeah. What are your thoughts about this? I mean, clearly for you, three pins means rally. Yeah, so if you, the average of two dice is seven, right? So if you are command, if you are a veteran, to so command ten, and you want to do that assault, and you're on three pins, you have a fifty-fifty chance of it working. I'll take that, okay. Yeah. Regulars, you're down to a six. Mm-hmm. Your numbers have suddenly shifted yeah. away from that average. Your chances of it coming off. You don't lose. Well, you will lose a pin for the successful order, 
but you're still going to be sitting on two pins post-assault, you want to make sure it's going to work. So it's for me, it's more of a Hail Mary. Like if I'm yeah, down exactly. on it's dice, if I'm down on dice, I'll take the punt. Why not? Yeah. Because I need to get some action because if you're down on dice, you're less likely to get first dice next turn. So even if I rallied, they're probably going to get shot again, right? Yeah, so exactly. either presenting your opponent with a target-rich environment or you're taking a run at it. So I, I still think if you don't have that assault option or anything, then yeah, you rally. Yeah, exactly. Try, trying to advance to move and shoot with t- three pins, you end up with two if you do pass. Mm-hmm. You're at neg two to hit, you're moving or you're at range. You're, you're starting six on sixes. You're not going to yeah. be effective anyway. No, exactly. And as you say, if you rally and you fail the worst thing that's going to happen is, yeah, you don't lose the pins, but you go down. Yeah. And that, as you said, makes you so much harder to hit. That was such a good point because I forgot that's how the mechanic worked yep. until Easter front when I was playing and I was, oh yeah, that's how this works. Oh, this is great. I'm going to rally all day long. Where it sucks is you're a vehicle Oh, and then because you, you just, up. you just reverse up, but you're still at same still chance to be hit somebody. Hey. and you're still going to get shot and yeah. you're still going to take more pins and it just gets worse. Yeah, exactly. Right. But that's, yeah, vehicles and the problem, yeah, trying to get them to rally Yeah, because they will get pinned out if you're not careful. Now, we did run two brand new missions at this event. We mm. ran Punch Through and we ran uh, Supply Drop which are missions out of the 2022 Bolt Action Alliance mission uh, Bolt Action Alliance mission pack that I still need to put up the last four beta missions for people to play test. I'm still in the process of tweaking things uh, to make sure that they are ready to go. There will be some more of those new missions at Operation Bear, but we got a lot of great play test uh, data from Easter Front, and we didn't want to have more than two new missions that people hadn't seen. And the feedback for those two missions was outstanding in general. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think Supply Drop is one of my favorites now. I actually played it in a friendly game yesterday and had a blast. Yeah, it's a good mission. I think it's for those uh, that have been around gaming for a while. Mm-hmm. It's a riff on Thunderhawk Down and then Kitty Hawk Down, and mm-hmm. now it's called Supply Drop. Well, with that so one, the, the big they're thing... They're slightly with, different. Yeah. And we've, we've fiddled around with the mechanics of it and the the amount of objectives which i think is important rather than a single mosh pit yeah um spread it out a little bit and i i really like how it is fair in that if because the way the mission works if you haven't read it one at the beginning of turn four one objective drops smack dab in the middle of the table middle line on the middle line the exact center point and then you roll another uh, you roll an order die because all order dies have an arrow on them if you look carefully. And then you roll three dice and you add nine. Now, we are probably going to play with that number, but it, it does give a nice spread and distance for the objectives and you move it in that direction. So in the game that I played yesterday, 14 inches from, oh, no, 15 inches from the center point, uh, place another objective. But then... 15 inches the other direction in the exact opposite direction of that in a line from the center objective, it means that you have three objectives in a straight line, one in each player's half, and then you have one in the middle, and it works really well. 
The only problem is with that distance, it is with those dice, it is possible to go off the board. And if that is the case, re-roll the dice and keep playing. And that did not happen in the games that we saw at this event. Um, there were a couple of players who thought that the, the objective ended up in a more advantageous position to their opponent than to themselves, but they acknowledged that that was by design. It, it, it's random. You don't know where it's coming in, and it forces you to be a little cagey until the beginning of turn four and then go all in once you know where it is. But you always know where at least one of those objectives is going to be. And as, it, as I yeah. said yesterday, I played it yesterday, and that's what I did. I got my force about a third of the way up the board into fairly defensive, reasonable positions. And then I started plinking away at my opponent's army and waiting. And yep. as soon as I knew where that went, where the objective was, I charged in and uh, went to grab things. And it worked really well. Yeah. If you stack a flank, you are taking a punt that it's going to end up in that quarter. Oh, yeah. Which makes me think, would quarters deployment mix it up a bit more? Yeah, that could be cool. Because it's either going to end up in your direct quarter or it's going to end up in different quarters than either of you started in. Spoilers, one of the other missions already has quarter deployment. So uh, may have to shift things around. We'll have to try it out. Yeah. I have to play it. But Lee, Easter Front, I think it went really well. Looking forward mm -hmm. to Operation Bear. Yep. L hoping to have a 30-player cap for Operation Bear. Of course, it depends on venue. See where we end up. We should have the prizes. We'll have the terrain. Everything will be ready. As soon as we know the venue, we will announce it. And um, you'll have a full player pack. We'll give you the points values. And we will go from there. Do know, though, we've had a lot of people asking. We are looking at a points value that is less than 1,000. But we are not announcing what it is until we go. Any it'll final be at words? at least 500 points. Yeah, at least 500. Yeah, it'll be... It'll be a lot more than that, though. Yeah, it... 700 plus. 800 plus. <laughs> Somewhere They're... between 800 and 1,000 makes sense. Exactly. exactly. And that is the range you want to shoot for, for Bear. And Bear has a fine tradition of being beginner player friendly. If you're listening to this, if you're new to Bolt Action, and I know a couple of you are because you've spoken to me, um, we would love to have you along. Even if you don't have a fully painted army, we can work something out. We either will loan you something, or I'm sure we can sort something out on the day. Um, because all you really need is three colors, right, Lee? Three colors and basing. Mm. Yeah. And I think that is a nice segue to go to another event that someone went to recently. Uh, because we Operation Sandstorm happened recently up in Cairns at the Australian Tank Museum. And it looked amazing. Uh, we had Hari on and we talked about the player pack pre-event. Hari, of course, is the TO for the event. But Lee... You traveled up from Melbourne to play. Tell us about it, man, because you cranked out the vehicles that you were building at uh, or at Easter Front was literally your army for Operation Sandstorm. Yeah, I made a uh, poor decision to build a new army for the event. So I, I think by way of background, um, Hari wanted to run an event this year um, themed around the Second Battle of El Alamein. Uh, which was North Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, I All my current bolt-action armies are all European theatre, mm -hmm. so I didn't have anything appropriate. Um, so six weeks out from the event, I was like, cool, uh, I'll make a list and buy some models and then uh, start assembling those. And Hari released the player pack 
um, with some, I know he's covered this off, but some mm-hmm. points adjustments. So all of a sudden I had uh, more points to play with. So I had to buy more models, <laughs> buy more models, which was just another, uh, another thing to do. So um, I, I took, I took a German list and I used the uh, medium. Uh, so it was an armored platoon option out of the Western desert book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the medium panzer platoon uh, because it was aimed at late, 42. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took a three pans of three J models mm-hmm. and then I took three Schutten squads, uh, which are the veteran. I took them as veterans. You can take them as regulars, but I took them as veterans. Um, and they're the guys that get a free LMG mm-hmm. um, to maximum eight men. And you can take a second LMG if you've got to buy it. So, but Hari's player pack said uh, all LMGs are 10 points. So I didn't get my free one, but I had to pay for both, but it still ended up being 20 points. Exactly. So I didn't actually. <laughs> Balanced out. Yeah. I, I was looking at it like, I was reading through it and I'm like, oh my God, I got to do all this maths. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't actually affect me. Not at all. Um, but what did affect you was, though, that you had a bunch of. Regular half tracks. Yes, so I had three Hanamag two fifty ones for transport because armored platoon. Every man needs a ride, uh, and so they're running twenty point cheaper for armored transports just mm-hmm. because soft skins get a lot more of a run. Um, I think locally, and they just want to sort of mix up the meta a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that freed up sort of sixty points. And I had a look through the book and because I was running a theatre list, it was quite restricted in what I could take, mm-hmm. uh, particularly for that time period, um, given what vehicles were available in North Africa. Uh, so I decided in the end to go with the two centimetre anti-aircraft gun mounted in a truck. Back so that's of the Opal. a light autocannon truck. Yeah. Um, so I took that. Uh, that required a bit of kit bashing because a model mm-hmm. doesn't exist. Um, so I bought a Warlord... Uh, the Maltier Opal Blitz truck plastic kit um, and built it as a truck. And then with a little bit of uh, trimming, chopping clippers, uh, I made a little platform in the back to raise it up, lowered the sides and mounted the Africa Core 2 centimeter AA gun in the back. Nice. Um, so yeah, did all that. That was sort of a bit of a simple kit bash. I added um, bit of plastic card piping bent that to make sort of a bit of a frame mm-hmm. as well behind the driver to sort of you know the kind of idea where you grab some canvas and cover everything up mm-hmm. sort of thing uh i also chopped one of the doors off chopped off the windscreen mm-hmm. made it very open topped um made it look very desert kit bash mad uh ma- so yeah mad max is i think the word you're uh for. well i didn't add spikes and flamethrowers yeah, so go. probably not full mad max mm-hmm. but yeah it gave it a bit more of a uh an on-the-field modification mm-hmm. look and feel to it. So, yeah, that's that's sort of it. So, for those who've been keeping count, uh, it was 10 dice army. Yeah. Uh, the points values, I think we were playing 1,265 points. Mm-hmm. But because of the discounted points, my actual army, if you took it as a regular count, would be a bit over 1,400 points. So, 1,400 points, 10 dice. Hindsight, not the best idea. Oh, really? How come? <laughs> Uh, well, when your opponents are running 16, 18 dice, mm. you just don't get many dice drawn out. And mm. what happens is your opponents basically have the initiative most of the time because they are 
getting shots off at you first every turn. They are able to put multiple shots into your units. So your, your units, you know, if you've advanced up a Hanamag with a squad in it, before you even get to activate it, it's got two or three pins on it. Yeah. And the squad inside's got a couple of pins on it. So mm-hmm. it's those sort of things that I hadn't played any games with it beforehand because I was literally assembling it. I was going to say, <laughs> I up. offered. Yeah, I, I know. Um, I just, I didn't have time to play games because I was busy assembling and painting. So Brad alluded to it before. Um, I only got it half painted. Um, I just, I just literally ran out of time, work, life, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vehicles were all airbrushed to a reasonable standard. They look good, man. Yeah, oh, look, they're, oh, they're my level. They're like forty percent done. So there's a fair bit of work to go on the vehicle still. If you, if you are standing at a tabletop length, oh yeah, look, you stand two meters away and they're all on the table. Yeah, it looks fine. Yeah, oh, I stand there and I'm like, well, that needs to be done. <laughs> but that's that's me. Um, the troops, I airbrushed all the uniforms as well. So I did a zenithal spray um, with the airbrush and then came over with uh, airbrush paints for layer ones because mm-hmm. they're a bit thinner. You don't get a bit more opaqueness. Um, so really what I've got, I use sort of three different colors and got a very faded uniform look that's come through. I'm quite happy with, looks really good. Uh, and then I've gone through and hand painted um, colors like the... Um, the webbing and the water bottles and the gas mask things and yeah, the faces cool. and re-blacked the weapons. So I went through and did all that and then gave um, those parts uh, an ink wash. Um, and I did the basing as well. So I, I based them with a sandy base and painted and dry brushed all that up. And so it looks, the bases look nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I effectively, I took them up. They, they look fine for the tabletop. Um would have preferred to have got them all painted, but it was just going to be a grind that mm-hmm. I just couldn't commit to in the end. Uh, so yeah, they troops are probably sixty percent done. So it's just a lot of brush work I need to go through and do and finish them off, which I'll get around to one of these years. Yeah, hopefully it won't be like the buffaloes. I might get these guys done in less than two years. Um, them sound like me. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. It's just I support this. Yeah, I mean, I've I've come back from that event and started painting Blood Bowl stuff rather than actually mm-hmm. finishing the Germans. So, uh, you know, I I bounce from project to project as I feel as I need to. Um, but yeah, look, the venue uh, was the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum, so it's a privately owned museum. It's not a, a government facility. Um, it's in Cairns, which is far north Queensland. It is pretty much the last big major town before you if you were heading north before you get into nowhere land mm-hmm. um, and things get very rustic um, it's a it's a tourist very tourist driven town um, there's the Great Barrier Reef if you're on a fast boat parts of the reef are 45 minutes off the coast mm-hmm. um, if you're on a bigger slower boat um, and you want to go to the outer reef it's about three hours to get right out Um but, you know, it's diving, scuba diving, snorkeling, all that sort of stuff. Which you also did. Yeah. So I uh, <laughs> I positioned this trip to my wife as, hey, would you like to go on a holiday? We can go up north to Queensland and we can go do some scuba diving and go do some walking and do some swimming in the rivers. And she's like, yeah, it sounds great. And I went, cool. Uh, uh, I'll just stay up for an extra weekend and play some bolt action. <laughs> Uh, but 
luckily, you know, she's on board with that. So, that was good. Nice. So, nice. yeah, we did spend uh, three days on a boat out on the reef scuba diving, which was really? pretty cool. Yeah. Did tie me out a bit before the event. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that I would, be sh- I would be ruined. I would be in shocking shape for that. Yeah. yeah. Probably should have played bolt action first, then had my yeah. rest. Instead, I did all my activities, then played bolt action. But by the by. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, really amazing facility to be playing games. I mean, it's basically a giant tin shed. Um, it's got fans and stuff, but uh, it still gets quite warm up there. Uh, probably should have worn thongs, but then you can't climb on the tanks. So, And you did get to climb on the tanks. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, a couple of the guys that were playing in the event also work at the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so props to Alex and Curtis. Um, and Alex is one of the, oh, I don't know, is he a historian or something, but he's, he's basically knows everything there is to know about all the vehicles. Yeah. Um, now it's not just tanks in there. I mean, they've got tanks from world war one onwards. Um, they've got some modern stuff in there. There's, um, leopards. Um, they've got a number of vehicles from the cold war. We've got armored cars, we've got APCs, there's artillery pieces, They've got, uh, there was a Russian artillery piece, which was the biggest piece in there. It's like a 155 mil cannon or something. It's outrageously big. You sent me a picture. I think it's yep. ridiculous. It's huge. It's literally a self-propelled artillery piece. It's currently being used in Ukraine. What? The Russians are using those pieces. Oh, I thought you meant that tank or that armored. I was like, wait, they took it from Australia? And no, no, no. So, so that actual piece is in use oh, by the Russians. Um, shooting the Ukrainians across the water from Odessa, uh, from um, uh, which bit they annex Crimea. Yeah, yeah. So they they're actually using those pieces currently. Uh, so yeah, it was it was quite cool. You know, we had Shermans. There was LVTs. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe how big the LVTs were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're talking Daimler Dingoes. We're talking. Um, they had a Panzer thirty eight T next to a Panzer three next to a Panzer four, so you could sit there and you could literally see all the different sizes. Mm-hmm. And I actually took a lot of reference photos of um, some of the vehicles because I was like, which bits of these are actually wood, and which bits of these little mm-hmm. gubbins are actually metal? And just so I know when I'm painting my tanks, so I can get the right bits painted in the That's right awesome. type. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was pretty cool. And on the Sunday, they actually fired up a few of the vehicles inside because you've got to turn them over. Mm-hmm. Um, 70% of the vehicles actually operate oh, within. So, so cool. there's a lot of them are actually functional. Um, so they have a schedule to start them up, turn them over on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Didn't get them to start the Tiger or the Jag Panther. But, but you did get yeah, to sit on the Tiger. I did get to sit on the Tiger. So part of our um, benefit, I suppose, of having it there and uh, was after hours on the Saturday. Um, we got a private tour, a group of us, so got taken around and sort of talked. And, um, yeah, we managed to get some photos on a couple of the bigger vehicles. So cool. And, uh, yeah, if you had a, a favorite wish list vehicle, um, for those that were uh, able, if you could squeeze into the driver's seat, you could get into them. Um, or you could get a photo on top, just mm-hmm. depending on the, uh, the vehicle and condition of it. Um, a lot of them have been restored, um, and then a lot of them are undergoing restoration, and mm-hmm. some of them are will probably never be restored. Um, but they had a number of historical vehicles there as well. They had a couple of Australian armoured vehicles um, that have come from the Australian Army um, and a couple that have um, combat, like this uh, a German Hetzer that actually had combat. Paperwork? Well, yeah, it, it's you it's, could... It's got historical 
backing to it and it's directly yeah. traceable that it fought in combat in Europe. That's crazy. Yeah, so and it, you don't get certificates for it, but and it's no. it, it, it was a participant vehicle, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think how you would term it. Yeah, it's it wasn't a combatant itself, but it was right. It was involved in combat, and there's actual evidence to that effect for that vehicle. Yeah, it's wild um, to see the vehicles that have actually. You know, it's one thing to actually see these mm. things that we paint and put on the tabletop and we talk so much about. Yeah. And read so much about to actually see them in real life. But then to actually have that, you know, sobering moment of, oh, this is actually one that took part in this battle. Or, yeah. you know, and you know what happens in those battles because we as gamers like to know about the circumstances that we're playing the games around. All of a sudden gets a lot more serious. Yeah, they had a number of vehicles that they've got. Obviously, the majority of them come out of Europe and different parts of Europe, but some of them were captured by the Allies, for example, mm-hmm. a lot of the German ones, and then they were taken back to their test fields. Mm-hmm. So they're riddled with holes from actually being shot because they were testing different munitions against them post-war to understand how those tanks actually performed because they were obviously still in use by a number of nations mm-hmm. throughout Europe and through Asia as well. Um, so yeah, it was quite interesting because some of the hulls literally had the sides blown out, um, because they'd been hit with big shells on the training grounds. So yeah, it was quite interesting and they do a lot of restoration work there, but, um, yeah, you sort of get a real perspective when there's a Hetzer sitting next to a Jag Tiger, Mm -hmm. a Jag Panzer, sorry. And it's like, wow, it's really small and that is really big. And you understand Tiger Fear because Mm -hmm. some of those things are Big vehicles. I I don't want to derail. I do want to come back and actually talk bolt action, but I think this story is hilarious, and I, I've been wanting to say it on the show. I was listening to another podcast, uh, the Totally Tanked Australian Tank uh, podcast, where these guys get together, and they talk about historical vehicles, and they drink beer, and they get tanked and talk about tanks. It's great. Um, they told the story of an IS or several IS-2s they got sent by the Soviets to China, through China, ended up in Vietnam uh, before the Americans got involved in Vietnam when it was the French um, to be used against the French forces as part of the, the freedom efforts. And the French response was they couldn't, they weren't, they didn't have the vehicles to send to support the French Foreign Legion. And so the Foreign Legion sent a few things, but one of the things that they sent was a panther that they'd captured from World War II. And it was wild to think of a panther in IS-2s fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. Yeah, that would be pretty wild. Madness. Yeah. Anyway. Be a um, lot of bogged vehicles. Yeah, pretty much. But let's talk about the actual event itself. That's a good idea. How many games was it? It Was was it five, four? Five games. It was five games over two days. Yep. Brilliant. And everything was, as you said... Desert War themed. Yep. Very specifically. Desert uh, tables. Yep. And everyone, all the terrain matched, everyone's armies matched, and it was Axis v. Allies. So you played nothing but allied players over the course of the weekend. No. Never mind. (laughs) Um, So the the idea was obviously to try and split. Um, What we did have was uh, we had more Axis than Allies. So my actual first round game was... Germans versus Germans, mm-hmm. but then the rest were all allies. I was going to so, say, yeah. you largely played allies. Yeah. So um, I think we had 
12 players all up and I think it was five and seven was the split. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Germans had to play Germans a number of times. So what they did, they actually, um, it wasn't a uh, Swiss draw or a round robin. Um, the setup actually was a, a pre-drawn, um, basically split everyone into two pools and mm-hmm. then drew Axis versus Ally pairs for each round uh, and then also random tables. So the thing with the random tables was ended up being allocated on the same table twice, mm-hmm. two times. Oh, so effectively on the draw, random draw, I only had three tables. Um, but for one of those games, uh, my opponent and I, there was some spare tables, so we mm-hmm. just switched tables. So oh, I ended cool. up playing on three, four different tables in the end. So that was good. Yeah, it's good, right? Um, Having that extra table really helps. Yeah, and that, that meant that we could... People were jumping around tables if they were like, oh, I played on this and the opponent had them. They just jumped on something else. Yeah, um, But yeah, the, the, the pre-draw was interesting because um, I did I did okay. I wasn't smashing it out the park game-wise. Uh, I had a good first day. I think I had two wins and a loss. And then uh, the second day, I lost my first round. So I was on two and two. And then went into the last game and I was playing... Uh, an allied player who was 4-0 at the time oh. because it was random draw, so it mm-hmm. wasn't Swiss draw. Um, and then there was a, another player um, who was also 4-0 playing somebody else who wasn't mm-hmm. as well. So, And that, that's, I think, it's the nature of trying to set up an event as Axis versus right. allies and trying to have that split but they weren't running it as a Swiss straw within that. Mm-hmm. And given the small number of players, being only 12 of us, theoretically, you could... Over five games, you've only got six people each side. Yeah. So you're going to play five of the six potential opponents anyway. Right. But it means if you've got... And what happened was those two allied players were both 4-0. Uh, they never play each other because they're on the same side. Yeah. So you end up with this sort of weird thing where... Best allied was going to be determined out of two people, but it was they would never had to play each other. Yeah, I mean, I, we've seen these this occurrence happening in other narrative events pre in the past, mm. and I know that sometimes the way it's done is they might have um, pre drawn for almost the entire event and have everything historically matched as close as they could, and then maybe the last round is actually Swiss. Yeah, I think given given the size. Yeah, we're talking hindsight. I probably would have run three rounds. You could have done three rounds Swiss Axe V allies. Yeah. And then rounds four and five, day two, mm-hmm. full Swiss. Yeah. Based on rankings from the first day. So you get that, you get that, you know, historical conflict side. But then you look at the the thing. I mean, look, it wasn't designed as a, a competitive thing. I was it about was to just, say, but it wasn't that. Yeah, so yeah. I know that I know that we naturally automatically think that way. But this was intentionally not. It wasn't built as this. It wasn't designed as this. Mm-hmm. It, they did. It did what it was said to do on the tin. And Hari did a great job running it. Right. I mean, organizationally, everything was set out. Um, you guys had missions. Um, he definitely posted a lot of videos of. Him looking very tired early of, in the morning. A lot of selfies. A lot of, <laughs> lot of selfies. But around really awesome tanks, which, you know, made for great video. I enjoyed every single one of those that he put up. So, yeah, I mean, it was it looked like a fantastic event. And I had such FOMO. I was so sad that I wasn't there with you guys. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth... Um, would have been great. We only had... Um, 
myself and Albert went up from Melbourne. Uh, would have been good to get a few more people up there. Oh, I mean, they've definitely got the space mm-hmm. to run um, more tables. I mean, we we had sufficient space for the amount of tables we had. But I mean, you know, we could have just moved the the tank next to us and had more space, right? And put just some more turn tables it on, in. back it up. Just so. yeah, hey guys, we need some more space. Can you just shift this one down the hallway? Yeah. Um, because I think they did actually move some vehicles to fit us in. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I think, and yeah, it wasn't like an, a purposefully empty space. It was a, um, yeah, let's just shuffle some stuff around so we've got a, a little space there. Um, so that was, you know, that was that was pretty good. But Well, talk us through our games a little bit. Maybe, I know it's been a little while since, so maybe you don't have to go through line by line if you don't remember it all. But what were some big takeaways? What were some of the big matches? What were... What were your what was the takeaway? Because I know that people often don't look at Hanomags as a particularly great choice, mm. but you were cutting that with three solid tank options for a tank war event, I should say. Yep. Reasonably solid tanks with reasonable guns. And then throwing the, on top of that, you had the AA truck that I know you YOLO'd onto an objective at yeah. one point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you also cut that with veteran squads that had the LMGs to get rid of mm. other... Uh, other infantry squads that were around the place. I know this was generally an armored event. So talk to us a little bit about your experiences. Yeah, I think the biggest disadvantage was having 10 dice because I was on the back foot so often. Mm -hmm. I think the smallest other army I played had 16. Oh, wow. And the biggest was 19. Because we're talking effectively 1,400. Well, I was running over 1,400 points. Mm -hmm. If somebody else took stuff that didn't have any points advantage... They were still running 1360, right? Mm-hmm. So my normal Americans is 10 dice at 1,000. So That's probably true. done myself out of a few dice, which then meant, you know, I just wasn't drawing dice when I needed them and I was taking more pins quite mm-hmm. frequently because I wasn't getting the chance to have that initiative to activate yeah. in a balanced way. Uh, particularly, you know, playing against 19 dice, I'm getting one dice, they're getting two. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the use of snap twos by the opponent, not really disadvantages because they've still got a dice advantage in the bag yeah. and then they get to do multiple things. So um, I think technically, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't <laughs> run an armored platoon in the future. Part of that was I needed to build something that was small and snappy. Mm-hmm. I could chuck in the bag to take on the plane. Um, I didn't want to take a big case. I didn't want to have to assemble, you know, 50 infantry mm-hmm. and a bunch of different vehicles. In the also had to before. paint them in a short amount of time. Yeah, and I, I lost a week because we we're going away for the week before. So mm-hmm. I had to have everything done a week ahead. So I just, time crunch wise, I, I made some decisions. And look, hey, I had a good time. Let's not get me wrong. I, yeah. yo- I YOLO'd my AA truck several <laughs> times because I looked at it as an inexpensive yeah. piece. It was a soft skin. It wasn't there to survive long term. It was there yeah. to be an annoyance. But um yeah, a lot of people had transports or tows because um, a lot of people ran mechanized lists as well mm-hmm. and all artillery needs tows. So like Andrew, for instance, ran two 88s mm-hmm. and then he also had um, another eight, two regular pack 38s, I think they were. So he had four tows on the board, right? Do you think my Panzer 3s were capable of shooting a soft skin toe and destroying it? Nope. No, they were not. Um, and I think that's probably the other thing is I just, my tanks were ineffective for their points. Yeah. Taking three of them was just a bit brutal. I probably would have been better off, um, 
taking just a regular reinforced platoon. And Hari was allowing, um, as part of the modified rules, you could either take two armoured vehicles or two um, armoured cars. Armored cars. Mm-hmm. I probably would have been better off taking the AA gun on my truck as my armoured car, mm-hmm. taking a Panzer III with the AT gun, and take a Panzer IV with a howitzer. I mean, the AA gun is usually in the tank slot, though. It's not a recce. It's not an armored car. I know because I ran them in my Italian Autosahariana list. Mm, I think the theater list I was using, though, um, in the armored car slot. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, cool. Might have been just the theater list, though. Mm. But yeah, it's it's a truck. It's an armored truck. It's yeah. not armored, sorry. It's a soft skin truck. Yeah, no, I know. If it's, yeah. um, it, But if, yeah, if you're running that selector, that... Yeah, but the generally... I don't run that. I run something else. Yeah, but exactly. I mean, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I'd probably change it up a little bit mm-hmm. if I was to do it again. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, look, I mean, look, veteran squads, two LMGs, you jump out. I'm putting at 12-inch range, I'm putting out 15 shots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, needed six to hit a couple of times. No hits out of 15 shots. Like, it's just... <laughs> statistics yeah. bad statistics um you know technically not done anything wrong assaults i got brutalized in assaults multiple times mm-hmm. um maoris yeah assault yep, yep blood curdling charge mm-hmm. and um yeah that was that was pretty nasty as well uh so yeah i mean there was some moments of bolt action brilliance of stuff going kaboom just sixes on sixes on sixes mm-hmm. and just rolling through and destroying stuff but yeah by and large i think my biggest disadvantage was just low dice count. More than anything, it just really shifts the balance of the game. Was there any army that you saw on the tabletop besides yours that sort of jumped out at you and you went, wow, that's cool? Yeah, well, I quite liked Andrew's um, anti-tank platoon mm-hmm. with the 288s and the two thir- pack 38s. I actually drafted up a list for that. Oh, cool. Um, when I was thinking about lists. Mm-hmm. And I ended up discarding it once I priced it up because <laughs> I was like, uh, it was getting really expensive to buy yeah. all the bits because I needed all the toes, which meant a whole bunch of trucks. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, now I need some vehicles. And I need, yeah, it just, I looked at the cost and I went, oh, I'm not willing to spend that much for yeah. a event for an army that's not going to get fully used in the future. Um, so yeah, uh, who else had some good stuff? There was a really cool French list there. Mm-hmm. Um, really well painted that I quite liked. I think that was Gareth's off the top of my head. Um, he had a really cool list. And unfortunately, because, yeah, I only played five games, I didn't get to see everyone's yeah. lists all the time. Um, there was a couple of Italian lists there as well. I was going to ask, uh, I do love an Italian list. What do we have? In- um, a lot of the little tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they've got some kooky stuff. Again, I only saw them during the, the painting uh, voting side of things. Yeah. Um, most games were running to time. It's just the thing. Yeah. Um, I had a couple that sort of did turn six and finish, but a lot of them were sort of turn five finishes. Um, just the timing we had and just um, time it takes to set up and play and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, yeah. overall, good event. I think it was a good time. Um, everyone was pretty shattered on the Saturday, so we all just retreated back to our own um, accommodations, accommodations and stuff. Yeah, there was a few of the guys staying together because um, I was up there with my wife. Uh, we were staying at different hotels mm-hmm. and stuff. So, um, yeah, would have been. I think it would have been good to have a, a larger Melbourne crew, sort of all staying in town. 
Um, I mean, it always feels good when you travel with a crew. Yeah, right? you I go mean, out for a beer and. I, I do like going places and playing games against people you don't normally get to play mm. games against and meet new people. Yeah, I mean, it's how communities build and grow. And you know, I I traveled to bolt action events. Plus, don't even get me started about fantasy and forty k events back mm. in the day. Oh yeah, and I have friends across Australia because of that, and it's great. But it is, as you say, it's also nice to roll in with someone and yeah. to have a couple of people that you know there so that you can commiserate between games and you have a shared understanding of where you're coming from. Um, I have got flown to a couple of events by myself and then you walk in going, don't know anyone here. I guess yeah. I'm going to make some friends. Yeah. Uh, and you do, but it can be a little intimidating. Yeah, I think, and look, certainly had chats to the guys and that and um Jason from Newcastle who's really cool mm-hmm. he um he gave me a lift back home on the Saturday and oh, nice. back to the venue on Sunday which was really good mm-hmm. um so yeah you know had good chats with him and, and that sort of thing spent a bit of time in the car uh and I think that's the other thing you know the venue was I don't know 20 minutes out of Cairns so mm-hmm. it's not like it's um you know there's people staying near the venue there's people that live up there and so yeah. they were just coming from home and that sort of thing. So it was a bit of a mix. A bit different to, you know, we had opera, you know, we did Easter Front we and did. then we went down to the pub mm-hmm. on the Saturday night. That was so bunch good, of us, right? About a dozen of us went down and yeah. had drinks and a meal and debrief and a bit of a chat, you know. And so I think that's the only thing was it sort of missed that in the sense. But we all had lunch together because we bought in pizzas for lunch every oh, day. Nice. Um, just because there's um, no food on, no canteen on site. So right. it's uh, just the nature of the beast. Um, but yeah, look, overall, I, I yeah recommend anyone in Australia make the effort to get there, and you can tie it in with a broader holiday. Take your significant other, or go by yourself if that's what you prefer. But yeah. you know, you can easily. There's plenty of day trips up in that area. You can day trip up to the Daintree. You can go look for crocodiles. You can go out in the reef on a boat, go snorkeling or diving or whatever it is you prefer, or sit at the pool and have a cocktail or. Hey, I hear there's a really good tank museum you could visit. Yeah, and you can even, well, if you're there for the event, you're seeing most of it during your breaks anyway. So I, um, yeah, I don't, if if you're going to play in the event, I don't think you need to take an extra day just to spend at the museum unless you want to actually go on the days and ride on the vehicles and things like that because they do do joy rides. Sounds like you're selling yeah. it to me, Lee. Yeah. Oh, so the big thing they've got, I think it's in August, they're doing Armor Fest, mm-hmm. which is their annual big event. Um, they are also running a bolt action event as part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Armor Fest itself, thousand plus tread heads coming in from across the country. Awesome. And they basically fire up most of the vehicles and run joy rides and do stuff over like three or four days. Um, I checked awesome. my diary. Unfortunately, have something else booked in that weekend. Um, mm-hmm. So I can't make the trek up this year. Um, but they are intending on running events there at least twice a year, possibly a bit more. Brilliant. But yeah, They also sell bolt action in the gift shop. Yes. And they have uh, several swivel stands of Osprey books. Mm-hmm. And I might have brought a few home with me. Hey, so, nice. Yeah. The uh, World the World War Two Museum in New Orleans also sells bolt action in the gift shop, or at least they did when I was there on my honeymoon. And yes, I took my wife to the World War Two Museum on my honeymoon, um, and we walked through. And you know, I did the triple take and pointed excitedly to my wife, who said, "Don't you have enough of that?" And I went, "Yes, but it's here. How cool is this?" Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. 
Well, Lee, I think we could probably start talking about my experiences at a Marvel Crisis Protocol event, but we've probably rambled on about events as it is. And I know we've been a little rambly today because it's been a while since these events have happened. But uh, I, it is good to actually sit down. And you and I have had a couple conversations about Easter Front and about other events and how we're using that to put things together for Bear. But I think it's also good to sit down and talk about it and have other people listen to maybe the, de the decisions that we make when we are planning these things. I know a lot of people have asked, you know, why do you make these decisions or what are your takeaways from events? And uh, the big takeaway from Easter Front for me was just that maybe next year we'll run a five game event. Um, yeah. And I'll take that feedback. Yeah, exactly. That's fair. I think the same. Amazing. If we do Bear as a two dayer, yep. there'll definitely be five games. I exactly. think that was the thing with um, Sandstorm last weekend was it was five games. So people could book reasonable flights home. Mm -hmm. I unfortunately booked my flights. Um, as soon as I knew the event was happening, but before the timings got put out mm -hmm. because I needed to, coming from Melbourne, needed to make sure I had them locked in and I was booking a broader holiday. So, um, yeah, the more notice you can give people with certainty, the better. Yeah. And having just, look, I played five games of Marvel Crisis Protocol recently and that is a, that requires a lot of thought and mm. it's a fairly intensive game. But I think Bolt Action is still the most mentally taxing game that I play uh, in a good way. I love it. Uh, it. It's constantly on the go. You're always thinking. It keeps you really engaged. It's one of the things I love about the game. Um, but I was pretty beaten up that weekend after three games, let alone mm. six. Yeah. Um, and I know that in game six, a lot of people were looking a little punished. So maybe five is the way to go. Um, and yeah, just for a two-day event. Yeah. I think it's definitely the way. You don't want to get home late Sunday. No. I got home at midnight. It was great. Yeah, and I do have the sort of wild idea that if we end up having to do one day, I wonder if four games, but then that starts to get... Not for BA. That you can't, you can't. Finishing. Well, you end up finishing at nine o'clock at night, yeah. right? So yeah. where do you fit dinner in? Do you have a yeah. dinner break? Like, you just end up, yeah. you know, if people flying in the morning or the night before. I think four days for BA is really pushing it. Yeah, exactly. I've done four to, a four-game... Blood Bowl events mm -hmm. and they run really tight schedules mm -hmm. and round times and you you know it's two hours 15 and if you're not done that's it that's it yeah, yeah. next round's in 10 minutes mm -hmm. go have a wee break grab yourself a drink I did that in a fantasy uh, event and it was I, I was broken at the end because mm -hmm. I made the mistake of playing Skaven and I spent my entire weekend re-racking models that my opponents had killed Putting yep. them back on movement trays, and I promptly sold the army after that because I didn't want to yep. look at it ever again. Yeah, no, you got to you got to run tight times if you're going to run that level of events. Like you'd have to run two hour forty five minute rounds, so there'd have to be two and a half hour games with dice down. Yeah, exactly. Sort of thing, and then um, you can end up with and and look, having played in a bolt action event that ran those tight times, slow opponents, people with high dice counts, mm -hmm. all of a sudden. People are only playing three or four turns. You're not yeah, actually yeah. getting a proper resolution. Not into that. And it's not good for everyone. Well, a couple of people have asked, and I thought this might be a good place to talk uh, about it. A couple of people have asked if I would be creating more terrain for Operation Bear. 
I always try to have at least one new table for every event that I run. And there will at least be a farm table at Operation Bear that has never been seen the light of day. Uh, and there are a couple of other bits and pieces. I'm thinking in our Den Forest Church board that, um, yeah, there's there's churches out in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, uh, with a river and some bridges. It's, yeah, I'm yeah. just trying to visualize. Look, I have it. I have it drawn out. I have everything bought. It's good. It's nice. Yep. We'll see okay. how we go. Cool. Uh, but th- seriously, um, there's going to be some great new terrain, uh, and I'm really excited about what opportunities we can give our players to, you know, put things on the tabletop. And Lockie from, not Lockie that we talked about earlier, Lachlan, the Mouth of Madness from the old LRDG days, has donated an entire table of desert terrain. Um, that we didn't end up using most of for Operation Bear, uh, but we will, sorry, for um, Easter Front, but we will be using it Bear this year, uh, depending on players. So it's really exciting that um, we're going to actually have a slew of desert tables, might put them all in a row and have themed sections of the event. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Plans are afoot. Anyway, on that note, when we start. Looking at the pie in the sky. I think it's probably time to go with what our buddy Casey always says. When you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. Go!